Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder today. I'm joined by Carson Weber. Carson, how are you doing today? I'm great, Ethan. Thank you. Also joined by our reporter, Jacob Rudner. Jacob, how are you doing today? Ethan, I'm fantastic. And to steal a little bit of Chris's thunder here, the weather is fantastic, and it's part of the reason why I'm doing so well. <laughs> and to talk about Chris, I'm also joined by Chris Cartman. How are you doing today? We are at the middle point of the college football season. We are well into the national football season. We have October playoff baseball going. We have the NBA preseason going. So how do you think I'm doing, Ethan? I think you're doing spectacular. Also on top of Jacob Rudner saying that the weather is also nice today. But today for this podcast, we're going to be talking about ASU's win over Stanford, 28-10. to 10. ASU is now 5-1 and one on the season and 3-0 and oh in the Pac-12. Carson, we'll go to you first. What were your initial takeaways from this game? Well, I think this was just a real quality win for ASU. And a lot of us on this podcast, except for you, Ethan, actually all of us looked at the spread, which got up to 13 and a half and said, that's just too many points. And yet ASU was able to cover and really dominate this game basically from the jump, having a lot of success offensively early and then just being absolutely stingy defensively and forcing some turnovers down the stretch. So I thought that this was a big win. It affirmed the strength of this ASU team after that UCLA game was very, very impressive, but had been an outlier up to that point as far as how good ASU looked in that game, particularly how dynamic they were offensively. And even if they didn't maybe live up to that level in this one, they found success offensively. They excelled on the ground, as has been their calling card, and had what was right up there for their best game of the year on the ground, second probably only to their opener against Southern Utah, which is just a completely different level of competition. They stopped the run on the other end, were very stingy, and again, picked off three times Tanner McKee, who was a very good pocket quarterback and one of the better passers that ASU will face all year. So even if maybe... They took their foot off the gas a little bit in this one offensively. They didn't finish as strong as they would have wanted to. They asserted themselves, again, as a very legitimately strong team, and it's a second consecutive convincing win over solid competition. So I think that that in itself is valuable. And again, they did some things really well that define them as a team, and that's always a good formula for victory. Jacob, what about you? Yeah, I would agree with everything that Carson said, and I would add that if you had read Chris's scouting preview of the game, ASU hit on almost all, if not all of the things that Chris had written that needed to in order for it to be successful against Stanford. It ran the ball effectively. Uh, it, limited, it limited the ability for Stanford to run the ball to uh, almost nearly in a historic fashion. ASU had not limited a team to that few rushing yards since 2018, nor had it limited a Pac-12 team to just nine or fewer rushing yards since 2016. Uh, from a disciplinary standpoint, this was a very good game. ASU had just one penalty for 10 yards up until the very end of the game when it had some personal foul issues that maybe were kind of a, a callback to its issues in the first several games, but largely this was a very impressive game. Uh, even when ASU eased off the gas a little bit offensively, I still thought that there were some very positive signs, namely the rushing, but also ASU maintained a pretty solid clip on third downs. It was 7 for 13 over the course of the entire game. And I know that a lot of those conversions happened earlier on, but still it ended over 50% in that category, something that Zach Hill had said actually just hours before we're recording this is really important to his team's success to stay above that 50% mark. And then Carson mentioned it 
Uh, defensively, this was a great game for the Sun Devils, generating turnovers, creating sacks. Uh, it did allow quite a bit of passing yards, but again, uh, Stanford Stanford relied very heavily on its passing game. Uh, McKee threw 45 passes. So generally, this was a super impressive game for the Sun Devils, even if they only scored 28 points when they easily could have scored more. And then Chris, what about you? Just taking care of business if you're ASU. Uh, come out, take a pretty commanding lead, score touchdowns on the first three possessions. Um, I thought the disparity between the two teams was very apparent. Stanford tends to play in games that are closer on the scoreboard than that disparity uh, in talent when it is uh, the underdog or the lesser talented team. ASU uh, sort of changed the normal narrative in that respect, I thought. And a big part of that was, of course, Stanford not being able to turn drives into points, which it has done extremely well this season and historically due to the turnovers um, and some other issues that Stanford had. Um, kudos to you, Ethan, for being the only person on our podcast to pick ASU to cover that spread. Um, people are going to, of course, talk about how come ASU couldn't score any more offensive points the rest of the way. We'll get into that, but really it, it, it's uh, Stanford and ASU both because they run the ball so much and they play a little bit of a slower style. There weren't a lot of possessions in the second half at all. Like I think three where ASU was trying to score outside of the one where um, it took a knee to end the game uh, and uh, missed a field goal and, and didn't convert a fourth down and one. And so that's how you kind of get to – some of the struggles. They also went for the, uh, that shot play to Porter, um, which they should have converted on. It could have been a touchdown and then threw the ball a couple times after that. So, um, and weren't able to convert and that led to a punt. So I just uh, thought it's, it's very easy to, uh, to not be able to get into a dominant position to win games in the Pac-12, we've seen that from all these teams. And uh, ASU has, has not played in any one-score game this year. We know that the, they lost by 10 points at BYU, but all of their wins have been by more than a touchdown, and that's a pretty good indicator of the, the caliber of team that this is when it is not uh, beating itself. Well, shout out to you guys for talking about my prediction, making me feel good. But we'll go to that offense that you just talked about in terms of maybe they left a couple points on the board. The rushing game was strong yet again. We talk about kind of getting the job done as Chris started talking about there. Rushing the ball and running the ball is one of those things that kind of starts it in terms of you're able to tick off the clock. The running game at 255 net yards and three touchdowns. Carson, talk a little bit about the run game and just how ASU were able to be so successful there. Well, again. This is their identity as a football team, and we saw a pretty electrifying performance through the air against UCLA, but this is what defines this group. And when you have strong games from Rashad White and Diamante Trainum, both of whom were efficient in this one and combined for almost 150 yards and Rashad White had a touchdown, and you get Daniel Ngata involved a little bit, and you have a really effective day from Jaden Daniels, not only scrambling, but also executing out of some design speed options, 
which also led to a dynamic play from Rashad White. This was just a really effective all-around creative running day from ASU too because you have Elijah Badger on the end around. So it wasn't just Diamante Trainum pounding it up the middle and we know that they can be successful there. It was also, again, weaponizing Badger getting on the perimeter, weaponizing Jaden Daniels and forcing a defense to think twice every time out. And I just thought that was tremendously valuable. And sure, maybe they didn't play their best offensive game, but they, they really did leave points on the board. And at the end of the day, when you're in a blowout situation, that's not the kind of thing that you need to be crushed over. And I think that you can actually take some positive takeaways and say, okay, they had nine drives. They got in scoring position on five of them. And even though they only had three touchdowns, they had they got the ball to Stanford's 11 and didn't convert on a fourth down. And then they had a missed field goal. And so when you're moving the ball like that, when you have 255 yards on the ground, when you have 430 total yards of offense, even if you only end with three touchdowns from your offensive unit and you're seven of 13 on third downs, like they did all these things well, again, it just didn't translate to an overly dynamic offensive performance. But the run game absolutely is what drove that. It is what can, will continue to drive that success for ASU, even in opening up the shot plays and the more dynamic things they do downfield through the air. And this game was just another reminder of now. It's now of why. It's now 11 straight regular season games that they've topped 150 yards on the ground. They're just completely and utterly dominant there, and they were again in this one. And, and, and Carson, to your point, it, it's not that ASU wasn't technically successful in generating the ability to hit on shot plays. It just didn't hit on them when they were there. There were several plays in which the run game opened up scenarios where there were just not enough coverage down the field and ASU had openings to pick up big yards, but couldn't deliver. Curtis Hodges had a reception way down the field uh, that Jaden Daniels underthrew, And he probably scores if that's a perfectly placed ball, Jordan Porter, there's a ball thrown to him way down the field, uh, literally right in front of the end zone. And he doesn't score on it because it's not even catchable. It's just overthrown. So it was there and it was effective. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with ASU's ability to just come out the gate and absolutely dominate the ground game. They ran 16 plays from scrimmage in the first quarter alone. 10 of them were rushes, and they averaged 11.9 yards per carry on the ground in that quarter. 119 total rushing yards. That is, that, I mean, that is pure dominance in that, asset, in that facet of the game, and it opens up the rest of ASU's offense. Now, granted, it wasn't able to do much offensively beyond that quarter, and specifically beyond the rushing attack in that quarter, but still, I think it just goes to show you the potential that this team has when it really does fire on all cylinders. Because at minimum, I think you can, you can very clearly uh, and, and accurately say that ASU missed out on at least two touchdowns, one on the Hodges play, one on the Porter play. And those are obviously byproducts of just being able to have to force defenses to pay a lot of mind to your rushing attack. And they did that successfully in this game. Well, so a couple things. First, the the... The Porter one was well underthrown, not overthrown. Remember, P Porter uh, had to try to stop and go back to it, and the ball fell incomplete. And then they did score on the Hodges uh, series, the flea flicker. The very next play was the was the Badger end around off that completion. The, there were two other passes that were big play opportunities that were missed. Um, one that was. Um, overthrown if you will maybe to uh Hodges over the middle working across the field and another one that was overthrown 
uh, across the field. I thought actually both, I think that might've been Pearsall. Both of those were actually potentially routes that were being run too shallow. Um, I shoot the video of all 22 from the press box and sort of the angle of attack of those receivers actually changed a bit because of what they were reading correctly or, or not. But going back to the run game, because that's what we're, we're supposed to be really focused on here. Um, I guess you could have easily run the ball for a lot more yards, right? Um, they, they, if anything, I think that they tried to do some other things in the second half, took their foot off of the, the gas a little bit with their run game. And that's the only reason that it wasn't a 300 yard rushing effort. They, they tried to hit on some big plays and really punch Stanford, just knock them out of, of, of the game. Um, because they felt like they had a total command of it. And more broadly, I think it's important to say, I, I tweeted this, but it, what this reminds me of is how the Stanford used to be one of the preeminent run offenses in the Pac-12, not even that long ago. You go back five years ago, remember Bryce Love carved up. ASU when it traveled to Stanford had three touchdowns he had 200 and something run yards uh, by himself and that was a hallmark that was a staple of what David Shaw did at Stanford and you look at the way that the fortunes have sort of changed in the Pac-12 more broadly USC had one of the best rushing attacks uh, in the conference in recent decades under Pete Carroll the Reggie Bush, Lendale White stuff and how that opened up things so much for their strong quarterback play in play actions. And, and now you see Stanford is struggling, can't run the football. ASU has run the football for over 150 yards in every game going back to November of 2019, which is kind of a crazy thing when you think about that. And USC can't run the football because it basically voluntarily gave up doing so, going to the air raid. And Stanford's sort of the same thing. Run game is where you can physically impose yourself at the line of scrimmage on opponents. And it's predictable. Okay, When we're talking about missed opportunities in the passing game because a ball was underthrown or overthrown or a route wasn't run exactly right, to, it requires a lot of things to all kind of come together to hit on passing plays. Well, run game, not as many things necessarily. You, if you can wear out a team running the ball, it's predictable, it's reliable. And even Oregon, when you go back to its dominance under Chip Kelly, the zone read stuff, it just it did it in a little bit of a different way. And more recently, their offensive line has been tremendous, the best in the conference when they ran the football very effectively. So. It's an interesting turn of events here that ASU is now clearly one of the best run teams in the conference and also the only 3-0 team in the conference, which to my view at least has sort of been gifted it in some respects, this, uh, this position as being one of the top run offenses in the conference. Oregon State as well. Uh, had a bad loss this last week to Washington State, but that was more on its defense, but it's also at the top of the conference in run offense. There's just something to be said about predictability of what that gives a team and how the Stanfords and USC's of the world sort of abdicated their throne by giving up 
and, and, and almost changing who they were stylistically for the worse. Yeah, so we, we talk about the run game. Jacob, Carson, all three of you kind of touched on it a little bit. The passing game, Hodges had a pretty big day himself. We talked about that long throw that could have been a touchdown. It was a thrown a little bit farther by Jaden Daniels. But what about the passing and receiving game and even that pass protection game from the offensive line, Carson? How did ASU do in that perspective? What are we kind of expecting from that? Well, I think that we touched on the key elements, really. Jaden Daniels is an accurate thrower of the football, and there are guys on this ASU team who can get open in the short and intermediate era area, and they can throw several screens a game to Rashad White and do all these things. But ultimately, the potency of this passing attack is determined by the shot plays, and they didn't really hit on the shot plays in this game, even though they had chances. So that's why Daniels ends up 14 of 23 with 175 yards and no touchdowns instead of 16 to 23 with 250 and a pair of touchdowns. Like the margins really can be that slim. And that's what we saw in the UCLA game. It's just, they hit on every one of those plays. It felt like when they hadn't done that previously. And Zach Hill has talked about the importance of that, but I absolutely think that the key takeaway on the positive side from this game, as far as the passing game goes for ASU is what we have continued to see out of Curtis Hodges, because he has quickly become one of the most productive players on this ASU team as far as the receiving core goes. And if you look at his debut against Southern Utah, we saw him have a couple of big catches downfield. He had 56 yards in that one. And then his last two weeks against UCLA, three catches for 57 yards. And in this one, four catches for 76. He is just a very distinct weapon and that he is this mobile presence at 6'7", who can still play with physicality, who can get open way downfield. Not a lot of teams have a guy like that. So again, it's always about the search for the number one in dialogue surrounding ASU football, but I just don't think that's the most important thing. Like it's not about determining, hey, who do we trust most, Ricky Pearsall or Curtis Hodges, because they're going to do different things for you. But I do think Hodges has entered that conversation as being up there for the most valuable receiving weapon on this team. Even though, despite the fact that he's a tight end, it may not be a ton of down-to-down stuff, high percentage opportunities. He is going to hit on some big plays for you. You can throw screens to the guy in the backfield, which is very unique for a tight end of his size. Again, he's just a very valuable weapon here. So overall, kind of a middling day through the air. But I do think it's significant when you see Hodges establish himself like that because we have seen the rest of the picture of this ASU passing game sort of round into form a little bit more, and we know what we're getting. But these last couple weeks from Hodges have just been a continued escalation and have really shown what he's capable of. And I think that unlocks another dimension to this ASU offense, which we knew was going to be key because we knew that Zach Hill loved his tight ends and we knew that they probably needed a little bit more dynamism somewhere in the passing game. And I think that Hodges clearly can provide that. And he's going to be a guy who matters down the stretch for this ASU team. And, and on the Hodges point with 76 yards against Stanford, he is now ASU's leading receiver. So I don't, I don't think any of us saw that coming even, even through six games in our preview podcast of the season. I think a lot of us had said that Curtis Hodges could surprise people, but none of us said that he would be, the team's leading receiver in terms of yards. So that's a really positive sign for ASU, both because Hodges is playing to what I believe Chris has talked about in his past to be his potential. 
I would also say that it's super important because Zach Hill has a tight end that he's able to rely upon, which as we've covered, you know, extensively, Zach Hill, his offense is at its, at its best when it has at minimum one tight end to get the ball to. And now he has that in Curtis Hodges in the receiving game. And that's critical. Hodges has also been good in the blocking in blocking scenarios, as has been case hatch. So there's another tight end. And now, now Zach Hill has two tight ends that are closer to what he needs in order for his op- offense to operate uh, at, at its fullest. As far as the passing game goes, there's not much to add, in, you know, in my opinion, from what Carson said. It was an, it was an average day at, at best. Uh, Jaden Daniels, 76 yards to Hodges, like we said, finished the day with 175 yards, so just 99 yards distributed to other receivers. But again, you know, I think ASU has shown potential in the passing game, particularly against UCLA. Uh, it's there. This was a game where we knew the running would be the focus, and ASU would rely on that for the majority of its production, and that's what happened. So, you know, it was it was kind of an average day in terms of overall output, but I also think that ASU was successful because it didn't have to rely on its passing game, and it didn't, and that's kind of all that it needs to be in against a team like Stanford. One of the things I think is an important framing for this conversation around ASU's passing offense is that even though they're not putting up a bunch of touchdowns on the board, Jaden Daniels is completing the highest percentage of passes in the Pac-12 at almost 70%. It's 11th in the country in FBS versus FBS competition. And they are averaging the highest yards per pass, which those things typically don't go together. Usually the the high percentage completion offenses, they throw a lot of shorter passes that, that don't go for as many gains. So ASU's had a lot of explosives in the passing game and also been able to run the ball very efficiently. And this is with fans, of course, seeing that they have missed on a bunch of shot play opportunities. Well, if they start hitting on that with a little bit more reliability, then this offense becomes one of the better in the, in the country because more broadly, ASU is fifth in yards per play at 7.1 in FBS versus FBS competition and um, seventh in yards per run at 5.8. And also this is the, the best third down offense in the Pac-12 and fifth nationally right now, over 53% uh, of the time. And this Stanford game was a really good illustration of that because um, eight of the completed passes by ASU in this game, and there were only 14, went for first downs. And there was a very balanced overall sort of attack because they had um, 21 first downs overall. So they have the ability to, to move the chains. And I think part of that is the, the uh, creativity of Zach Hill, understanding uh, who, who to target and when and how situationally, but also opponents haven't been able to really key in on any one individual receiver on third downs because there's, there is no go-to quote unquote guy that you're, you know, the opponent's going to, going to try to get the ball to, if you're a defense trying to prepare 
for this team. So in some ways, it actually works to your favor if you're ASU that it could be Hodges, could be Pearsall, could be Buckley Shelton, could be a, a big play opportunity for Andre Johnson or uh, Brian Thompson. It could be something with Elijah Badger. You just don't know. It could be Rashad White, uh, you know, throwing the ball to him. There's just a lot of things that opponents have to try to prepare for in a given week, getting ready for a Zach Hill kind of an offense, and especially with the versatility provided by the personnel. And that actually, in a lot of ways, uh, counterbalances the lack of these dominant weapons in the passing game. And speaking on passing games, we'll go over to the defense and how they did against Stanford's passing game. Tanner McKee came into the game without a single uh, interception thrown, and ASU able to have three interceptions on him. We were kind of wondering if they would struggle given how they played against the passing team in BYU and, and how much that kind of made them struggle. But what did we see from the secondary in terms of defending the pass, Carson? Well, I think that we saw some good and some struggles as well because they ended up playing Tanner McKee pretty well. At the end of the day, if you hold him to one touchdown, you force three turnovers, you're very content with that performance. And I thought that they made some big plays on the ball. They had even a couple chances maybe at more interceptions than what they ended up with. Jack Jones had a very good game and obviously had the interception that turned into the pick six, setting up DeAndre Pierce there. The one to end the half for them was probably a little bit luckier off a deflection. But overall, if you force turnovers like that, you're going to put yourself in a good position to win a game no matter what. But at the same time, that's obviously not as sustainable as just down-to-down, very good defense. And this was the first time that we saw ASU have the ball moved on them through the air like they did in this game. Tanner McKee ended up with 356 yards, was pretty consistently finding success there. But again, he's a really good pocket passer, and Stanford kind of had to throw for this entire game because they don't love their run game to begin with, and ASU did a great job of taking that away. ASU also, again, generated some significant pressure, and they ended this one with five sacks. They are averaging 3.4 sacks a game on the year. That is the best mark in the Pac-12, and it is just a calling card of what they do. They have guys who can rotate in at a moment's notice and just immediately make plays. We've seen that with... Anthony Cooper stepping up. We've seen that with BJ Green coming in and just immediately being productive. We saw that with Tyler Johnson this past week, who had an outstanding performance with the two sacks and earned National Defensive Player of the Week honors. So I think they did some great things. They got pressure and they forced turnovers. And if you can do that, that's going to be enough for you to win the game the vast majority of the time. But again, down to down, they weren't perfect. And I think that maybe the most significant thing is that we saw another tight end have a very big performance on them. Two weeks ago, Greg Dulcich of UCLA had a monster performance, and that's kind of to be expected, even though he hadn't had a game quite that good this year. He's an all-Pac-12 caliber tight end. But Eurosec for Stanford basically equaled his yardage in this game compared to what he had done in every Stanford game prior this season. He had 118 yards, was pretty consistently open, and connected on some big plays as well. So that challenge is not going away for ASU. They have a Utah team coming up that is also very reliant on its tight ends, has two tight ends that they really like to utilize. 
So that's an interesting challenge to continue to track how ASU handles going forward. But overall, they got pressure. They made plays on the ball. They took advantage of their opportunities. And I think you have to be happy with that when they made Stanford one-dimensional like they did because at that point, all you have to do is limit the pass somewhat, and they did that. ASU has been among the better teams nationally, not just in the Pac-12, in many important defensive statistics uh, so, so far this season in games between two FBS teams. And one of the areas where they're not as strong as they have been in other categories is opponent yards per completion. Uh, ASU this season is allowing 12.1 yards per completion in games against an F FBS opponent, which ranks 67th in the country. Uh, in this game, they also struggled in that category, and I think that that plays a big part in Stanford's success in moving the football. Another area ASU struggled in this game, and it has been a lot better, so this was a little bit different in comparison to its previous performances, is that Tanner McKee was able to complete 60% of his pass attempts. On the season coming into this game, ASU was allowing well below 55% completions to other quarterbacks. Now that number is at 55.32, which still, by the way, and this is what's most impressive to me, ranks 21st in the country. Carson, you talked about sacks. Again, ASU has been fantastic uh, among teams that are playing FBS schools. Again, in sack percentage, ASU ranks sixth in the country. So it was a, it was a continuation of a lot of the things ASU is good at, particularly with its defensive line getting a pass rush. Uh, that being said, though, it also continued to have a hard time in some of the areas that we've seen it be not as proficient so far this year, namely yards per completion. So I think it was, it, it, it was not the best performance at all, and that's evidenced by the opposing quarterback throwing for 356 yards. Uh, he did, however, attempt 45 passes, so that was, you know, it was on them a lot to have to stop Stanford's passing attack, and the result of that is, I'm sure, tiring, and, you know, it's going to break down at some point in the game when the opposing team is attempting 45 passes. But it's important to point out, Stanford scored just one touchdown the whole game. So even though ASU was allowing Stanford to march down the field with its offense through the air, it kept it out of the end zone. And at the end of the day, you know, it might not have been the best performance leading up to that, but that's probably the most important statistic. It's that it was extremely limiting when it comes to scoring. So I think that there are a lot of areas that need improvement, like Carson said, you know, from this game particularly. But at the same time, it can't be totally written off as a bad performance because there were areas where they had some redeeming qualities, particularly in the pass rush and in just overall score prevention. See, I think that tonally, I think you're, you, you have a little bit um, harsher assessment of ASU's defensive performance against the pass than I do. Uh, I think there are factors there, including um, the score leading to certain types of coverages and decisions. Like ASU played more zone in this game. And I think probably part of that was dictated by the, you know, being up early, a couple touchdowns. They played some zone even in the first quarter. Um, and, and then also I would say that Stanford, they, they hit on more sort of 50-50 balls because they have the big receivers. They'll throw the jump balls to it. You know, it, it not necessarily poorly defended some of those times. Um, you know, or it's a split second here, their difference between a successful play and not to Marcus Davis jumping a little bit too early 
in, on the touchdown, uh, the one touchdown pass to, to Higgins, who's a, he's a load. I mean, 6'3", 235 pounds. Um, Carson said that Eurosec was running open a lot. And some of the times he was, but then there were a couple other balls where it was like fitted perfectly by Tanner McGee, who's a good quarterback, who's going to be a really good quarterback in another year or two. And you had two ASU defensive players or uh, colliding with, with, with Eurostack as soon as he caught the ball. Um, so any time that you have a, a quarterback of that caliber, I think, in the Pac-12, throw the ball 45 times a game, you're probably going to – have a 300 yard passing day that your defense is going to give up. But that is so, so deceiving because if you look at how many yards ASU gave up in, in total in the game, it, it was 369. And it, that's pretty good. That's, that's well better than average, much better than average uh, uh, a day in FBS competition you know, giving up 369 yards, uh, inability to run the ball at all. I just don't think that you're going to totally shut down a team like Stanford. And, of course, McKee had no no interceptions on the season going into this game. He has three. There were a couple other opportunities that were close to being picked off, balls batted in the air, routes that were jumped and batted down, things of that nature. And Stanford was only five of 14 on third downs. Um, and part of that, I think, is the good point that Carson made and is important to continue to emphasize, which is ASU getting five sacks, pressuring McKee, Tyler Johnson having a two-sack performance. Um, it, it's not made it easy. When you have the ability to stop an opponent's run game and get to the quarterback, oftentimes with four-man pressures right they're not blitzing a lot and almost no six man all out kind of blitzes but when they were in man coverage I thought that they actually did quite well of course what ends up happening invariably when Evan Fields is out and uh and Chase Lucas is out for most of the second half that some of the you know targets were against Jordan Clark Tommy Hill actually gave up a few catches, two or three catches to Higgins alone operating out of the slot. So I think it's part of it is they still haven't had all of their top five defensive backs on the field at the same time throughout an entire football game. <clears throat> Pardon me. And that's, that's been somewhat of a factor, but when you get the three takeaways, your opponent scores 10 points in the game. Um, you, that's still a good performance in my eyes. Yeah, and we, we've talked about ASU recently playing against teams that have been really good on the ground. This game, we didn't really come into the game thinking Stanford is a great running team, but ASU did hold them to 13 total net rushing yards. So Carson, once again, ASU is a team that are stopping the run very efficiently. So what did you see from them in this game against Stanford? I think it was a really strong performance. And to me, the more valuable stat is what the running backs did because sack yardage being incorporated with rushing yardage in college football doesn't make all that much sense to me. But Austin Jones and Nathaniel Pete combined for 14 carries for 45 yards. 
So that's a really stingy day defensively from ASU's run defense. And it's impressive. When we approached this season, there was a very high level of certainty about what ASU would do in the secondary. There was a pretty high level of certainty about what the defensive line could do generating a pass rush, but what they could do stopping the run without Jermaine Lole was something of a question. And I just think that at this point, we have seen them on several occasions pretty authoritatively answer that question and show that they can be an elite run-stopping team. And maybe this isn't the ultimate test because Stanford hasn't chosen to run the ball a whole lot on this year. And they haven't done it with overwhelming success. But Antonio Pierce said ahead of this game that he would not be shocked if Stanford did try to make this game a little bit more physical and if they did try to run the ball a little bit more. And that's not what they did. And part of that was probably by design and plan, but the, part of that was also probably that ASU really didn't make that look like a very appetizing option because they were so restrictive there. So you don't let up really any chunk plays on the ground. They pretty much just contain this group entirely. And if you can do that, given how they want to play football, where they're dictating with their run game on the other end, I think that that puts them in a good position to win consistently, especially when we know what they can do generating a pass rush in the secondary. So I thought a very strong performance from the ASU run defense. And I, I agree with you, Carson, about how, you know, in college football, statistically, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to have total rushing yards include sack yardage. Uh, it just isn't the best representation of a team's overall run defense. It's really more a reflection of its overall pass rush. But that being said, it is included. And, you know, in comparison to other games of the past, this was one of ASU's best overall uh, performances statistically in recent years. And, and, and obviously, you know, beyond statistically, it was as well. But ASU has not limited an opponent to this few yards, like I said at the outset of the podcast, since 2018 against UTSA when it allowed three yards. Against a Pac-12 opponent, and obviously, again, this includes sack yardage, ASU hasn't limited a team to this few yards since it limited Washington to minus 38 rushing yards, again, including sacks, in 2016. So ASU put the clamps on in terms of its overall rushing defense in this game, and I will say that that is particularly impressive to me because one of its starting linebackers, Kyle Soley, was not able to play until the second half due to a targeting call from the week earlier. So this was accomplished with Eric Gentry, a freshman, on the field in the first half. And obviously, he plays a large role in ASU's ability to stop the run. So this was a, a particularly impressive performance. It's a continuation of a lot of growth that we've seen in this category. And then even more so impressive because, like Carson said, without Jermaine Lole, this was an area of great question coming into the season. Uh, and this was, this was a phenomenal performance to end the first half of the season as ASU gets even deeper into its Pac-12 play. So uh, I would say that uh, ASU had pretty much dominated. I think Stanford decided it wasn't going to run the ball that much because the first series or two, they, they showed some commitment to it. What ended up happening in the game is Evan Fields for safety was from 10-yard alignments coming downhill aggressively and he was involved in several tackles of Stanford's run game. And that's, that's kind of demoralizing. When you have the ability to have a safety play run and pass from that sort of a depth and Stanford not being able to do anything vertically against ASU. Remember, ASU hasn't given up a 40-yard play from scrimmage. I think it's the only 
remaining Power Five team in the country that could say that. And and so those two things, Fields ended up leaving leading the team with seven uh, tackles, by the way, which at least three or four of which were against run plays. Uh, that contributed to Stanford being one dimensional. And the other thing I would say is that even though he only had two tackles, one of which went for a loss, DJ Davidson completely dominated this game. Uh, his ability to control the A gap, uh, either through power or sort of lag to gapping it, um, and also still sort of pursue to the football and be involved in blowing up a lot of plays super impressive and then anthony cooper uh who started with michael matus out uh was excellent again uh, he is someone who got pushed around quite a bit last year and was much more of a passing down type of a weapon that you brought in as a third down guy to get after the quarterback and here it is he's playing against uh stanford linemen and He's not getting moved off the ball. This guy's dropping an anchor. He's pursuing from the backside, getting to the running backs, showing some explosiveness. He had this one tackle where he chased it all the way down the line of scrimmage, dove, got his hands on the back, and brought him down. I see his functional strength has gone to a totally different level. Um, so in a trenches type of a game, the, the play of those guys has – was quite impressive uh, to me. Even no no Omar Norman Lott with three tackles, but one and a half was a loss, including a sack. Um, you know, they, they, they're just, they're, they just get it done, these guys. And it, it was a pretty quiet night for ASU's linebackers because they really didn't have to do a whole heck of a lot in that game. And that's another sort of indication of – just, uh, in my opinion, how one-sided that it actually really was. Yeah, Chris, we'll go back to you again, just in terms of the last thing we'll touch on specifically for this Stanford game. The special teams, it didn't really end up mattering in the end, but the special teams weren't great on the day. What did you see from that unit? Well, yeah, um, you know, they, they, they had one of their best drives of the night um, stall out, and then a missed field goal by, by Zendejas, uh, his first miss of the year, actually. Uh, and it was, a, it, was a, it was on the right hash, I believe, but it, it's still a, a chip shot uh, and it wasn't even close. So you don't want to have that happen. That's probably the best situation for it to happen, given the, the time and the circumstances of that game. I think the other very noticeable uh, thing was Eddie – Shaplitsky has had an excellent start to his career as a freshman replacing Michael Turk, but he struggled in this game, uh, unable to flip the field with a couple opportunities, had some short punts in the 30-something uh, yard range, and wasn't under duress or anything like that. So uh, that's something to watch because they, they're going to need some field flipping probably when they play against some of these road games, Utah, Washington, Oregon State, they may be lower scoring, especially Utah, Washington State. And, and um, it's not just about pinning someone deep when you're, um, you know, when you're hanging out, um, you know, in midfield, it's about what happens when an opponent 
pins you and um you know you, you you just you know you have to get a good you know 50 60 yard punt from your own 10 or 20 yard line or something like that and i'm not saying you can't do that but that's probably one of the bigger areas of concern and then um dj taylor was back out there on kickoffs but stanford was putting the ball in the end zone and so that there wasn't much of a factor um and uh, so we'll have to see they they i will say to asu's credit they haven't given up anything big in the return game on punt and kickoffs really uh nothing like that's been a significant huge game altering play uh in that respect and um you know so they're overall special teams and they didn't have any penalties in this game really that were hurtful on on special teams so you know, some, some things positive, some things not as much so for ASU. Still haven't really put together a total night that is great on special teams, and that might also be an important thing going up to Salt Lake City. Yeah, so outside of this game, ASU, even though special teams won great, still got the win. How do we feel? We're going to talk, go through all of you guys for this, but – how do you feel about ASU at the midpoint of the season in terms of what we expect to heading into the season? So ASU right now is now number 18 in the AP top 25 poll. ASU is predicted to win 9.4 games left and they're favored in every game except their slight underdogs in the Utah game that Chris just talked about in Salt Lake City. And they now have a 30.3% chance to win the whole conference. So Carson, we'll go to you first. How do you feel about ASU right now at the midpoint of the season in terms of what you expected at the beginning? Well, I think that ASU has to feel good about where it stands right now. And uh, there was obviously a rocky moment there with that BYU game. But I think what that really showed is how much had to go wrong for ASU to lose on the road to a very good team that was ranked number 10 in the country just a week ago and was definitely never as good as that ranking would suggest. And it was inflated in part by that win over ASU. But ever since then, they have been very impressive, and I think that you can look at them, and they're a top 40 scoring offense. We've seen them, again, run the ball as well as you could reasonably have expected. They have flat out one of the best rushing attacks in the country, certainly in the Pac-12 when you're putting up 212 yards a game on about five and a half yards per attempt. We have seen them connect on some of those chunk plays, and then defensively, the standard is so high that it feels like we're never overwhelmed by anything that they do and we'll criticize them in a performance where they have three turnovers and five sacks against a really good passing quarterback like we did in this podcast to a certain extent, but they have been restrictive. They have been consistently stingy. They have the number 14 scoring defense in the FBS, and as games have gone along, they have just gotten more and more stingy there, and I've had some real shutout performances in second halves and really after first quarters. So this team has had to deal with some stuff injury-wise, particularly on the defensive end, but I think that they have really found a balance offensively and a rhythm all around that they have to be pleased with. And the standards are high, and sure, maybe they haven't played four quarters of perfect football, but these last two weeks, I think, have to have ASU and ASU fans feeling very good about where the team stands because every game down the stretch, to me, they should probably be favored in. And I know that FPI views them as an underdog at Utah, but they're the betting favorite. And I think that they're clearly the better team. It's just a matter of going on the road to a hostile environment. And I think they have a very legitimate chance to go 
10 and two. Like it would take a lot for them to win out, but nine and three at the very least, 10 and two has to be the expectation to me. They are the Pac-12 South favorite. They might be the Pac-12 favorite. And even if the first few weeks were underwhelming, I don't think ASU could have possibly complained if you told them before the season, hey, that's where you're going to be standing. Yeah, I mean, with, with regard to potentially being able to win the conference, that thoroughly exceeds my expectations from the preseason. Uh, I, I was back and forth between picking eight or nine wins and all of that. And I think very clearly ASU should win at least nine games. Carson, like you said, if ASU wins 10 games, it wouldn't be a surprise at this point. Uh, I mean, it's going to be difficult, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility with six games left and already five wins on the table. Uh, You know, I I think that this has been a, a, a sensational start for them. And obviously there were some bumps in the first several games. Penalties were a problem. Uh, penalties were a massive problem against BYU in hindsight, a game that ASU really should have been able to win considering its talent, had it not been so penalized and kind of tripped over itself so many times in that contest, I I think it's within the realm of possibility that it could have been a perfect start to the year. Now, obviously it wasn't, but still that has exceeded my expectations for this team. So I, I would, if I had to reassess the, the win you know, projections, I'd say that nine and three is still my most likely, but 10 and two is certainly second most likely. And at this point, ASU has to just be careful to not repeat what it did in 2019 when it started the season five and one, and then went to Utah and lost that game. And then three more after it. So, you know, uh, ASU has been in this position before, not with this much talent, in my opinion, do I think it's possible that it falls backwards? Like it did, uh, you know, two years ago. Sure. I don't think it's as likely, uh, I think this is a really good team. We've seen that through through six weeks. Yeah, I, I, I'm not really that surprised uh, by too much that we have seen by, from ASU this year. I thought the, they were very close between five and one and four and two being the most likely record at this point. But I, I thought five and one was more likely. Uh, wouldn't have even been surprised at, at six and oh, and they Honestly, they left BYU on the table. They they they're better than BYU. I'm, I think it's pretty clear. Um, and and they they sort of they messed that game up. And with their offensive operational issues that they had there, you know, you can make a pretty strong case at this point that ASU is the best team in the Pac-12 overall, including Oregon. And Oregon has a tougher strength of schedule to this point having played both Ohio State and a very good Fresno State team. But if you look at some of the metrics that are, at least in my mind, some of the most predictive of future success, it's like yards per play, points per play, points per possession, uh, and then third down conversions, red zone success, opponent, opponent success in all those same categories. Uh, ASU is, is just, it's just easily better. Like, uh, Oregon is not a top 25 team in almost any of these categories that we're talking about. Uh, they are in the top 25 in opponent, uh, uh, rushing plays. You know, the opponents have really, you know, not had a great amount of success running the ball against them. And, and that's, that's a really good indicator for them. Um, and, and Oregon's taking care of the football just uh, 12th 
in FBS to FBS games and in, in uh, interceptions thrown. So that that's a very positive. But ASU has much better uh, uh, numbers in some of these advanced predictive uh, categories and, and, and quite easily the best in the Pac-12 South when you look at it in terms of both offense and defense. And um, so the other aspect of this that I think is going to be really interesting to see what happens in the second half is I'm surprised that ASU is underwater in turnover margin because we know Jane Daniels has historically a very low interception rate per pass. We know that uh, we haven't really seen these running backs fumble the ball much. Trainum lost the fumble in this last game. That was the first of his career. But between uh, him and, and, uh, and the other two backs, and even ASU's wide receivers, the ball hasn't been on the ground much. And yet, and, and then also, ASU generates a lot of quarterback pressure which oftentimes leads to strip sack fumbles. It leads to handoff exchange fumbles. It leads to quarterbacks throwing the ball under duress into coverage and getting more interceptions. And yet ASU actually hasn't generated a lot of interceptions this year. Stanford was a little bit anomalous in that regard uh, relative to the rest of the games this season. And so ASU, for being 5-1, and 3-0, it's sort of rare to, to – not have a positive turnover ratio, but I actually think that they're more likely to have that move in their favor in the, the next six games, even with three of those being on the road in some difficult environments, maybe some adverse weather conditions and the other metrics. Um, I don't think they're really going to change all that much, right? I, it, yes. Utah and, and Washington, uh, those could be maybe some little tougher defensive uh, opponents. Uh, even Arizona, for being a really bad football team, the defense has not been horrible. It's really been a lot more of the offensive ineptitude. Um, but from a predictive standpoint, when you see that ESPN FPI has ASU predicted to win 9.4 games this season, 30% chance to win the Pac-12 overall, I'm starting to I, – I see that as, as realistic to me. Like, it, it's, you, I'd put the over-under at 9.5 wins right now for ASU. And um, at the same time, of course, yes, we saw what happened last time when ASU played at Utah. It was 5-1. and one. That started a four-game losing streak. It was a really bad performance, especially on offense. And um, the team struggled from, from, from then on. This is a lot different, though, of course, right? Because... It's a much more veteran team. They've been really good in the trenches on both sides. And I think that they are built for being able to handle the type of game that they're getting into this week uh, at Utah. And I'm looking forward to talking about that on the, our premium podcast later this week. And as you guys said, things have certainly changed a little bit in terms of what is expected at the beginning of the season and now, even as Chris was talking about some of the things, maybe not too surprising, but ASU has fulfilled those expectations maybe uh, from some eyes as well. But uh, anyways, it's another win for ASU, this time over Stanford. It makes ASU number 18 in the AP Top 25 rankings. They are now just over BYU, as Chris was just alluding to. Make sure to look out for the Upon Further Review. If you'd like more about Stanford and that game, and it's on 
the board on the site that is up on the site right now. ASU now has a game against Utah in Salt Lake City coming up this Saturday. The practice report are going to continue to be going out up with players and injuries and stuff like that. And as Chris said, we will have that premium preview podcast for that Utah game coming up later this week and make sure to look out for the first look, which is written by Carson. And that is also on the site right now. If you were to look into Utah before that premium preview podcast, but for now, that's it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast for Carson Greber, Jacob Rudner, and Chris Cartman. I'm Ethan Ryder. We'll see you guys next time.